Okay, you ready? You can hear me okay? Great, we're on? Perfect. Awesome. Let's go. I'm Peter Little, lead pastor at Christ Pacific Church in Huntington Beach, California. We're cultivating a community of faith, hope, and love that follows Jesus into the world. And you're listening to our Sunday Sermons podcast. To learn more about us or to subscribe to this podcast, visit us at cpchb.org. Thanks for listening. Uh, my name is Peter. I'm the lead pastor here. Hi and welcome. It's great to see you. You look really good this morning. Yeah. Oh, thanks. <clears throat> I wasn't trolling for a compliment. You actually really do look uh, really good this morning. Hey, um, do you, have you ever noticed this? Of course you have. Uh, this is kind of a rhetorical question. How um, the holidays can sometimes be more stressful than normal life? Or how there can be more conflict throughout this season than there is in a otherwise normal season. And it's often because, or fueled by, the reality that more of our families gather together more often during this time. And so there just seems to be uh, more conflict than there normally is. Have you ever noticed that? little bit. And then uh, that's just like familial and like personal. Uh, But then you think about the global stage, right? Ukraine, North Korea, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Iran, polarization in America. If you are reading our Advent devotional, uh, which I hope that you are, and there's, um, if you haven't picked one up yet, uh, you can on the way out. Uh, Carolyn Ahrens wrote the Devo for this morning, and so um, good on you if you've already woken up this morning and already read that Devo, but she, um, she notes a study that set out to determine if there were any sustained periods throughout human history where there was peace. And so for this study, uh, the one who was conducting the study uh, just sort of randomly determined that, uh, that war would be defined as any active conflict that claimed more than 1,000 lives, right? So you can imagine all of the conflicts that claimed less than 1,000 lives. But if you just look at active conflicts that claimed more than 1,000 lives, this study surveyed 3,400 years of human history. And in that survey, discovered that there were 268 war-free years. That means 92% of human history has been marked by active conflict. Now, I hope that your life is not marked by 92% conflict. I hope that's not true of your personal experience. But the reality is that conflict is always nearby. Conflict is always close at hand because anytime two people get together for any amount of time, there is going to be conflict. I know that because I've been married for 20 years. It's going to happen, right? It's uh, because we are broken. Things are not the way that they ought to be. And so conflict is a reality that we experience, of course, globally, but it's personal as well, isn't it? Well, we're going to pray a little bit, and then we're going to look at this vision from Isaiah and its fulfillment in Ephesians. And what the good news for us is. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father of mercies, 
have mercy on us today because that's what you would want to do. So we call upon your goodness. We call upon your heart for the world and ask that you would make peace here this morning, that we might go from this place as peacemakers. For we pray it in the name of the Prince of Peace. Amen. So uh, we have some human strategies to combat this kind of conflict uh, in our lives, right? I'm going to highlight three human strategies, uh, three strategies that we employ in order to deal with conflict, and I'm going to call them uh, human flesh solutions. Um, I'm going to call them human flesh solutions because they're rooted, these solutions are, uh, they're rooted in what the Bible calls our human flesh, that is our sinful nature. Right? So none of these human flesh solutions work particularly well at making real peace, uh, but we do employ them rather often. So here's the first one. Isolate and avoid. Right? So you might choose to avoid conflict, which usually takes on the form of avoiding people with whom you might have conflict. And if we do this often enough, if we avoid enough people with whom we may have conflict with, pretty soon it begins to look like isolation. As we discover that conflict is always just around the corner and kind of inherent in any human relationship, even healthy human relationships. And if we don't avoid people altogether, then at least we will avoid topics of discussion that could lead to conflict. You know the rule, right? Polite company doesn't discuss religion. You got it. Okay. So that means uh, if, we, uh, if we can't discuss um, our deeply held values and convictions, in other words, our religious beliefs, and if we can't discuss how we get along together in the public sphere, in other words, politics, then that leaves for us things like the weather and the World Cup. And I know that many of you are watching with enthusiasm, well, you were until we lost the World Cup, but honestly, if this is what is left for us in conversation and in relationship, then there's not much left. Uh, Do you remember um, these guys? This is Frank McAllister from Home Alone, Uncle Frank um, on your left, and uh, good old Cousin Eddie from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation on the right. Uh, So right, Cousin Eddie, he and his obnoxious family show up unannounced in their RV for a Christmas vacation. The avoid and isolate strategy in order to avoid conflict, the avoid and isolate strategy just doesn't go to grandma's house for dinner because Uncle Frank and Cousin Eddie might be there. You just don't go. You just avoid. It's not a particularly good strategy or solution for peacemaking, and yet we continue to employ it, hoping that next time it might actually work. Okay, there's, uh, there's another strategy that we sometimes use. Uh, it's called attack. Well, I'm calling it attack and defend. Uh, we, might, uh, we might employ this strategy, the opposite of, uh, of avoidance and um, avoidance and what did I call the other one? Isolation. 
Thanks. Wow. Okay. It's on the screen right in front of me. How are you guys doing? I'm doing great. Okay. So um, we, we do this because uh, maybe we're afraid of looking bad or we're afraid of losing. And so we fight in order to win at all cost. And the cost of this strategy is usually counted in the numbers of lost or damaged relationships. In fact, maybe you employed this strategy. Maybe you used to employ um, a kind of attack and defend strategy. But as you looked at the wake behind you as a result of this strategy, and you saw all of the all of the relationships that were damaged, maybe you actually switched strategies to the isolate and avoid. That way, nobody will get hurt. Right? You can just avoid conflict altogether. This uh, attack and defend strategy, this strategy, uh, this, this strategy goes to Christmas dinner at Grandma's house and then launches into Uncle Frank and Cousin Eddie. Attack and defend. It's not a particularly good strategy for peacemaking, and yet... We sometimes continue to employ this strategy thinking that next time we'll get better results. Well, the third, uh, the third strategy this is the last one I'll highlight. I think this has probably become the most popular one in recent years, from my perspective anyway, and it's the strategy of tribalism. It's kind of a modified avoidance strategy. This strategy is mostly about finding people who will not disagree with you. Finding people who will agree with you. Find your tribe and then everything will be fine because all the people around you are just like you. Tribalism is mostly what the Jews and Gentiles practiced in the first century. They lived in different neighborhoods. They shopped in different markets. They worshiped in different temples. Tribalism. This also is not a particularly good strategy for peacemaking. And yet we sometimes continue to attempt it Continue to employ this human flesh solution, hoping that maybe next time we'll get different results. Maybe it'll work next time. So these human flesh solutions of isolate and attack and tribalism, into these, the prophet Isaiah speaks a powerful word, a beautiful word. He speaks into this conundrum of how we are trying to make peace and yet how it does not actually work. The Lord lifts up a house on the highest of all mountains. That's the vision in Isaiah chapter 2. And this Lord's house that is lifted up on the highest of all mountains, all people stream to it. And at this place, the Lord teaches us his ways, and we walk in his paths. Then this beautiful vision of Swords being hammered into plows and spears being melted into pruning shears. And Jesus is the fulfillment of this vision in Isaiah chapter 2. And Ephesians chapter 2, which Cindy read, articulates uh, this Jesus solution to the problem of conflict, the problem of a lack of peace. Christ himself has brought peace to us. In other words, peace comes from him. Not only was peace brought by him, but peace was bought by him. 
peace is found in Jesus Christ. And that's because he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. In Ephesians 2, the context is the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. But Jesus broke down the wall of hostility that would separate any two people who are different, any two groups who are different. He breaks down the wall of hostility between women and men, between Asians and Hispanics, between rich and poor, between married and single, between Republicans and Democrats, between millennials and boomers. There's a conflict. And Jesus did this. He did this by making one new people. He brought the two together and he made one new people. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles or between rich and poor, male and female, millennial and boomer, however you want to divide things. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two groups. That's verse 15 in Ephesians 2. Galatians 3.28 puts it this way, In Christ there is no longer slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This means your primary identity, who you are, no longer comes from the fact that, for example, you are a woman or an Asian or over 65 or a mother or anything else. Now, all those things are important and wonderful. Yet the primary reality about who you are, the fundamental identity piece for you through faith in Jesus is that you are in Christ. And when you are in Christ, you are in peace. And when you are in the peace that he has brought and bought, you do not have to avoid or isolate or attack or defend or retreat into tribes. I think the question that is before us is, okay, that sounds great, Isaiah. Thank you, Jesus, that this is what you have done, that this is the peace that is available to us, the peace that has already been purchased by Jesus. But the question before us is, how then do we cultivate the peace of Christ? How then do we live into and enjoy this peace that is available to us? Well, again, if we look at Isaiah 2, there's some hints. Isaiah 2, again, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all. And people from all over the world will stream there to worship. The Lord's house in Isaiah 2 is a reference to the Lord's people, which is a reference to the church. And Jesus calls the church a city on a hill and the light of the world. And Jesus says that this city on a hill or this house on the highest mountain, as the prophet Isaiah puts it, Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 16, he says, okay, city on a hill, okay, house on top of that highest mountain, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let your light shine. Let the light of Jesus Christ shine in and through you. The city on a hill draws people to itself because light is shining from it. And because in that city on a hill, 
in that house on the highest mountain, in the church, among the people of God, the Lord teaches us his ways and we walk in his paths. That's why the light shines. That's why we can be and become a city on a hill. The Lord teaches us his ways primarily through the scriptures, primarily through his word, the Bible. People are drawn to the church when the church sits before the scriptures and listens to God's voice speak through them. And not only when we listen, but when we walk in the pathway he calls us to go down. When we listen and obey when we obey his teaching, when we walk in his paths. You know, it's only when the church listens and obeys the word of God that we attract those who are not yet part of the church. Throughout all of history, whenever the church has listened to God's voice and obeyed God's voice, this is when she has grown. Because this is when she becomes attractive. This is when she draws people to herself because this is when the light of Jesus Christ shines in and through this city on a hill. Now, I want you to note these two words up here, ways and paths. Ways and paths. In Isaiah chapter 2, the prophet does not say that the Lord teaches us his concepts his ideas, his principles, or his philosophies, and that we then agree with him. That is not what the prophet Isaiah says. The Lord is teaching us the way to go, the way to live, the way to be. And we walk in this path, which demands far more than intellectually assenting to an idea or a philosophy. Jesus does not teach us a set of beliefs which we can say, yes, I'm into that. Jesus shows us the way to go. And then he says, follow me. The church is a city on a hill that shines forth the light of Christ because it's a community of people engaged in a particular way of life. The Jesus way. Did you know that the church was initially referred to as the way. It first comes up in Acts chapter 24. We were called the way because Christians were people who lived a particular way. They walked in the paths of the Lord. And so what does the way look like for the city on a hill? Again, Isaiah 2, in verse 4, he goes on, he says, talking about this house on the highest mountain or this city on a hill, he says, they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. The Jesus way is the peacemaking way. The way that calls for swords to be smashed into plows. And spears to be hammered into pruning shears. I don't think this means that we're all supposed to become farmers. Or that we're all supposed to get into agriculture in a way that we hadn't been before. 
But what it does mean is that Jesus is saying to us the same thing that he said to the apostle Peter when Peter picked up a sword and cut off the ear of one of the men who had come to arrest Jesus. What does Jesus say to him? Put your sword away. Put your sword away, Peter. And I believe that Jesus would say the very same thing to us. Put your swords away. What are swords for? They are for cutting down and destroying. What are plows for? Plows are for breaking up dry ground, for planting seeds, and for cultivating growth. The primary ammunition that we have, the primary uh, weapon that we have is actually our words. I'm just assuming that most of you don't carry swords around. When we employ words as swords, we cut people down and we even destroy reputations. Remember the human flesh strategy of attack and defend? That's when we use our words as swords to cut people down. But when we employ our words as plows, we break through dry ground. We plant seeds of faith. We cultivate growth in other people. The way of Jesus, the way of peace is the way of the plow. Same with spears. Spears are for piercing and killing. But shears are for pruning and pruning in a way that promotes flourishing. When we employ our words as shears instead of spears, we're promoting growth in others. We're promoting human flourishing. We're promoting discipleship. We're helping other people follow Jesus and become the women and men and children that they have been redeemed to be. There's still cutting involved, but it's always cutting that's aimed at flourishing. It's always cutting that's aimed at building up and lifting up. You know, like, hey, brother, like, I noticed um, that you haven't taken a day off of work in months, like, and it seems like you're pretty wore out. Like, let's talk, man. Are you okay? Like, do you need help? Those are pruning words. Hey, sister, man, you used to be so consistent to our life group where we got to pray for you and support you, but, but I've noticed that you're rarely with us anymore. Like, how are you doing? Like, do you have Christian community? Do you need support? Those are pruning words. The way of Jesus, the way of the peacemakers is the way of the shear, the way of the pruning shear. Because the peace of Christ is not merely the absence of conflict. If it were, then isolation or avoidance would be a fantastic strategy. Because you could live life in such a way that you avoided all conflict. But the peace that Jesus brings is not simply the avoidance or absence of conflict. The peace of Christ is a peace that needs to be cultivated. It takes plowing. It takes pruning. And one day, Jesus will come again. And when he comes again, he will make peace fully and ultimately and perfectly and finally. All of those spears will be hammered into shears. All of those swords will be hammered into plows. Nations will no longer train for war. Until that day comes, we get to be on a city on a hill 
that shines forth that kind of peace that Jesus will one day ultimately and finally put into place. We're going to move to the communion table, which is the best possible conclusion to this morning's sermon. Because here at the communion table, uh, Chris, can I get that last slide? This is important. It's kind of the punchline today. Yeah. Here at the communion table, we are reminded that the Prince of Peace was pierced so that we might walk in the way of peace. It's here that peace was bought and brought to us and for us. It's here where Jesus lays down his life and takes upon himself all of the lack of peace in the world. Where he pays for all of those human flesh solutions that don't work very well and invites us to walk in the way of peace. As we were worshiping earlier, I just couldn't help but be stunned by the reality that Jesus The living God took on human flesh and was born a baby in Bethlehem and laid in a manger, maybe kind of like this one. That Jesus took on flesh and that he offered his flesh for a way of peace so that you and I could live in peace, so that you and I could be peacemakers. To help other people also live in peace as we look forward to the day when peace will be full and final and perfect. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come make peace, even as we celebrate the peace that you have won for us here at the table. Thanks for joining our Christ Pacific Sunday Sermon Podcast. To hear more of our sermons, or to subscribe, or to learn how you can be engaged with what we're up to in Huntington Beach, please visit us at cpc.org.